QD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is Deanna Riley, and you're on the Hive Poetry Collective, where we talk to poets about their craft and anything about poetry. Today, we have a poet from the Bay Area, Meryl Natchez. Hi, Meryl. Hi, Dion. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming to the farm for this interview. I'm so happy to have you here on the Hive. I think I'm just going to start by reading... Your bio, Meryl Natchez's most recent book is a bilingual volume of translations from the Russian, Poems from the Stray Dog Cafe, Akhmatova, Mandelstam, and Gumilev. Did I pronounce those right? Akhmatova, Mandelstam, and Gumilev. Yeah, so the answer is no. Sort of, almost. (laughs) Almost, okay. Her work has appeared in Hudson Review, Poetry Northwest, the American Journal of Poetry, Zizva, did I pronounce that correctly? Zizva. 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 The Pinch Literary Review, Atlanta Review, Lyric, The Moth, Comstock Review, and many others. Her book of poetry, Catwalk, is forthcoming from Longship Press in spring 2020. She is on the board of the Marin Poetry Center and blogs at MerylNatchez.com. She has raised four children founded a business now owned and run by the employees, and co-founded a non-profit, Opportunity Junction, now in its 17th year. Natchez has lived in Spain, Canada, Mexico, and has taught at University of California Extension. Her honors include finalists for the Poetry Northwest Joan Swift Award, a Community of Writers Residency at Point Reyes, an Award of Merit from Comstock Review, and others. So, illustrious bio from Merrill. So, Meryl, um, I think I just want to talk a little bit about the translations. Okay. First off, how did you become interested in writing translations from Russian? Oh, well, my father was born in Russia, and uh, when I was in high school, I went to a high school that offered Russian, so I took it. Uh, I had a wonderful, dynamic Russian teacher who was um, a refugee from the Spanish-American War. She had left Russia because of the pogroms and then left Spain because of Franco and was teaching at this little school in Vermont. And um, she was earthy and full of life and taught us songs and just gave me this incredible love of the language. And then when I went to college, my first Russian course, um, I was at graduate level because I'd had four years of Russian and all they were doing was um, conjugating irregular verbs for mm. hours. And it was so depressing. And I was so, in such despair that I went into the stacks and I got out a volume in Russian of Mandelstam's poetry, which then had not been translated into English. And I just was so uh, moved by it. He, he's an amazing poet. And the poems I was reading, he had written at about my age. He was 19 and in 1911, <laughs> and he um, was writing these poems about faith and, and God and what is life and where is, what is his role in it, and I was just captivated, and I started translating them, and I put the work aside for 40 years, <laughs> and then I had the opportunity to take Bob Hass's um, workshop in translation, and I continued translating, and at the end, I had a book. At Berkeley. At Berkeley, yeah. Wow. I think that translation is really exciting for young people to do. It really is because um, it lets you into a world of craft. You don't really have very much life experience when you're 19. So, I mean, what you have to write about, not maybe so very interesting. But when you are translating a poet of substance... You get to practice the craft of poetry using someone else's ideas, so pretty exciting. And also, you have to really think carefully about the language and make Absolutely. some decisions. I heard uh, Forrest Gander gave a craft talk at the Community of Writers, and he mentioned in passing in the craft talk, this was right after my book had been published, 
that his Russian friends were always amazed at the way American translators mindlessly rhymed the nouns in Russian. And I ran back to my room and got the book. Did I do that? No, thank goodness I didn't do that. (laughs) A sin. I could have done it, (laughs) but I didn't. (laughs) So you had an instinct. Well, um, I felt like, you know, um, Mandelstam, Gumilev, and Akhmatova, they were... um, they were like um, Pound and Elliot in the West, the same time period and the same kind of break with the flowery transition of the tradition of the past. So to translate them in rhymed verse anyway, even though their verse rhymes because everything in Russian rhymes, would have been in English very phony to what they were doing. They were breaking down the old tradition, and to go back and do rhymed metrical verse in English would not get the spirit of their poems across. So I used a lot of slant rhyme and um, assonance, and but I didn't make metrical rhymed verse out of their metrical rhymed verse, which mm-hmm. many people have done. So do they have a lot of rhymes just because the endings of their verbs? Yeah, everything... All the nouns uh, and all the verbs conjugate and um, decline. So the endings um, by, are the same by case and mm-hmm. by tense. Mm-hmm. And so they just rhyme, 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 rhyme. It's hard to avoid rhyme mm. in Russian, but it's not at all like English where you have to make rhyme. Mm. So, hmm. yeah. Maybe that's one of the reasons why Russian literature is so... Maybe one of the many reasons why Russian literature is so great. Also, they have very tortured souls. Yay. <laughs> and a Yay. lot of snow. Yay. <laughs> All those things make for good literature, I think. Yay for bitter hardship. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, wonderful. So that, uh, that answered my first question. Um, why don't we move now to how you got, is that how you got into poetry? Or did you, were you interested in poetry before that? I started writing poems when I was eight. And I remember my mom gave me uh, one of those uh, small army green metal boxes with filing cards in it. Um, I guess she had it and was not going to throw it out, and she gave it to me. And I began writing little poems on the filing cards. And um, that's how I started writing poetry. And I just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. And... That's intriguing. Yeah. A little metal box? A little metal box. A little metal box about six by three Mm -hmm. by four, you know, with, with, I don't even think we have filing cards anymore, but, you know, they were just little kind of heavy duty cards, like Mm -hmm. small postcards with lines. Do you have that? I have the, the first year of them and the very first one, which is so interesting to me, has a little picture of a person with its giant pen and it says, I know that every time I look back at this, it's going to embarrass me, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and I thought, how did an eight-year-old know that? Yeah. I think, we, I think that we know more than we realize. I think you're right. Anyway, yeah. it really surprised me to find that. I had, had not remembered it. But yeah, I still have the first ones. Well, maybe you had a lot of self-awareness because you read a lot. I was a voracious reader. And in fact, um, my mom was a person who would go to lectures and learn things. And one, she went to one lecture that said you should not make your children pay their library fines because it discourages them from reading. And I mean, I took out 10 books a week. And at, once she stopped, started paying my library fines, I don't think I ever returned another book. <laughs> That's good. It's good to train you to be a thief like that. Right. No, I mean, they eventually (laughs) got returned, and she eventually changed her mind about the fees. But um, there was a period there where my my room just started having stacks and stacks of library books. That is such a great story. Um, So then you went ahead and studied literature in college. Yeah, I did. I was an Mm -hmm. English major. Did you have a Russian minor, or Um, I stopped eventually? I gave up Mm -hmm. on Russian after that first experience. I just didn't see much point in pursuing it. I kept up translating, and I, I really was fluent for about 10 years after college. I, in fact, when we lived up in Oregon in 1974, they had the Olympic trials there, and I got to go on the field and translate for the Russian team. Oh. <laughs> 
How old were you? Oh, let's see, 74. So I was 26. Oh, I bet that was fun. It was really fun. Yeah. It was really fun. Wow. That's so empowering. It's so empowering when you can translate, when you can speak another language like that. Of course, I completely lost my Russian over time. And when I took Bob's class, I had to heavily rely on the dictionary. And um, I eventually got some help from grad students because I felt like I just wasn't sure about things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's really important as poets that we read a lot of work in translation and that we try to translate and that we just be more world citizens in our approach to our poetry. I really agree with you. And I mean, if you have a daily practice, you know, there are many days when you're just staring at the page and you have nothing at all to say. Great time to read and try to try your hand at translating mm-hmm. because it's a, it is a way to keep your hand in. When, you, when you're in that period, then that period can stretch out and stretch out where you really don't feel very inspired, but you want to be working. So not only does it keep you engaged in the world, but it also keeps you engaged in your craft, I think. I love translating. I, I translate for myself all the time. Hmm. Hmm. Do you ever translate your own poems? No, I have never tried to translate my poem into another language. I've never tried that. That's an interesting idea, though. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is a really interesting idea. Yeah, I've done that a couple of times. Yeah? How, how does it feel? Well, you know, it's always fun to practice language, just the linguistic puzzle and the parallel poetry. You basically create another poem. Yeah. Um, it's, they're, like, they're like fraternal twins. <laughs> I like that. Born, born Which you would sep- know about. <laughs> Separated at birth. Yeah. Raised in I like another that. country. I like that idea. That's really well put, Dion. Well, why don't we go ahead and listen to a poem now here on the Hive Poetry Collective. Um, Meryl Natchez is going to read... The primary handbook, right? Is this from... Yeah. What, which one of your books is this, this from? This is from the new book, Catwalk, and it's actually, the I think, the second poem in the book. I just I just put it in right at the end because I'm writing this whole sequence of poems about the 60s and 70s at the moment, and I wanted to include one of them in the book, and this is the one I picked. Okay, so this is Meryl Natchez reading here on the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley, and this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Okay, the primary handbook. I wonder how many of us, long hair parted in the middle, poured over the Chinese barefoot doctor's manual by the light of a kerosene lantern, hoping it was accurate, as we assembled the package of blankets, twine, cloth diapers and pins, sleeper, boiled scissors, wrapped it in newspaper, tied it, baked it, and set it on a high shelf as we waited for the unpredictable journey. Everything we did needed a handbook then. So when the head appeared after more pain than I had been led to expect, and Larry rotated first one shoulder, then the other, and the scrawny body popped into his arms just as the handbook had said, with an alien beauty the book hadn't described, is it a surprise we thought we were changing the world, or a surprise how it pushed back and changed us? Thank you. There was Meryl Natchez reading from the primary, reading the primary handbook here on the Hive Poetry Collective. So I seem to recall that there was a practice in the 70s to bake diapers and the objects necessary for child book in a bag, like a grocery bag, or it looks like you use newspaper. Newspaper, we were supposed to use, I mean, the book I read said that newspaper was the most sterile thing to use for some reason. And yeah, you you were sterilizing everything that you were going to use when the baby was first born. By roasting by, it. By, by roasting it, it very lightly, like 250 or 300 degrees in the oven for a couple of hours. And then you just set it on the shelf. And I think the reason newspaper was it was supposed to somehow repel things better than a brown paper bag, mm. according to the Chinese barefoot doctor's manual. Yeah, I <laughs> vaguely remember that. You know, Ellen Bass has a poem. Yeah, because. Because yeah. when she talks about how in the 70s this was a common practice. Yeah, we've had that discussion. And I mean, um, 
home childbirth in the 70s really was um, a religion for... Radical acts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was just, you know, part of... You didn't want to do anything that had to do with the establishment. They mm-hmm. were wrong. Everything they taught you was wrong. Childbirth was natural. You should have it at home. I had four children at home. Wow. So... <laughs> and uh, and um, that was illegal at a certain yeah, point. Yeah, my first child was born in Spain, and... Um, then, um, yeah, then the others were illegal, but for, for the last two, we actually had a doctor who was willing to come. By then, it was getting more, less, less perilous for doctors to come. We had a very strong midwife culture in Santa Cruz. I bet. At that yeah, time. I bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, a, that's another example of how we can learn a little bit in a poem, a little bit of recent history. It was, yeah. I mean, the fun thing about writing these poems about the 60s and the 70s is like they're they're so mythologized at this point, you know, Woodstock and flower children and that there was certainly that element. But I'm sure, as you know, um, there was a lot of downside to it all, too. And I feel like it's important to kind of explore that. It's interesting to me to explore it in my work. And it's it's a rich vein because I mean, we we dropped pretty far out before we drop back in, so. Yeah, and we just thought it was okay to throw everything away. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that was the whole, the whole premise was that we were changing the world, and the way you did that was to reject pretty much the culture that we had, and, and its values and its practices, and to recreate those. But we were still driving cars on freeways. Yeah, and eating food we bought at the supermarket for the most part. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, crazy, crazy time. I think also in this, in this poem, and maybe related to what we just said, was the idea of how this handbook prepared us, yet did not prepare us. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, we were so naive and young, Mm -hmm. you know, and so a handbook can give you procedures but it can't really give you context. It cannot prepare you for the unpredictable journey, yeah, as you say, uh, which is a great, a great line, the unpredictable journey, because the childbirth itself is a, a journey. The, the child is making a journey down the birth canal, but it's the beginning of a journey that nothing can really prepare you for. Absolutely. And you say that again. So when the head appeared after more pain than I had been led to expect. Well, that was the big myth, that childbirth really wasn't painful. Um, that it was, you know, it was, it was just a natural process. And actually, it's pretty painful. Right. <laughs> it is. It is. Oh, yes. Maybe I mean, it's I, different for everyone, but I can remember thinking, note to self. <laughs> Do not delude yourself that this was not painful. I remember, so for the last two, we had a doctor. And after the last one, I said, uh, we videotaped the birth of the last child. We had a videographer come in and Mm -hmm. videotape. And when I tried to watch that videotape, I was immediately thrown back into labor, listening to my own breathing. And I remember asking the doctor after I'd finally gotten to watch it without going back into labor, I said, like... I didn't remember that there was that it was so painful. And he said, "Well, you know, there's kind of a lot of stretching that has to go on." <laughs> God. Anyway. God. Yeah, I can remember. I would vomit with every contraction in the first phase. Oh my God! Right. <laughs> I love the little detail and Larry, the husband, mm-hmm. who is seen, appears to be a character in your poems yeah. pretty frequently. How he is. The detail of him rotating first one shoulder, then the other. That was the instruction in the book. And it worked. And it worked. And I remember we read that book and we thought, God, could this really work? And it (laughs) did really work. (laughs) Well, I think uh, when you're pregnant and the first time especially, and you look at the videos of a baby actually coming out, the impossibility of it. It's just staggering. It is. And to think that we all get here that way yeah. is like mind, mind-boggling. mind It's like pooping out a watermelon. Yeah. 
Well put. Okay. Here on the Hive Poetry Podcast, on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, where we talk about pooping out watermelons. This is Dion O'Reilly. <laughs> I'm here with Meryl Natchez. Um, we're talking about her poem, The Primary Handbook. The Primary Handbook. It being the handbook of childbirth. Right. I mean, it is true that most of the things that we were doing, we didn't know how to do. And so, I mean, we had a handbook for gardening and a handbook for killing the pig and a handbook for the chicken raising. And, you know, so like we had these stacks of whole earth catalog and all these books telling oh, us yeah. how our to, bodies ourselves, our bodies ourselves, mm-hmm. the woman's body handbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything had its little handbook in those days, and we were struggling to figure things out. Well, the 50s somehow was a time of great alienation from our natural selves. I feel like the 50s were like a corset that everybody was constrained in and unhappy in, and so we popped out of that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially women were frustrated with... I think men were unhappy too. Like you yeah. watch that series Mad Men. Oh yeah. You know, they were in their own prison mm. of having to go to these jobs that really were pretty meaningless. Well, all the men had PTSD. Yeah. I mean, my father had PTSD. My father screamed in his sleep and you'd have to wake him up by poking him with a broom because he'd jump up and try to punch you out. Wow. He from yeah, the he, war? Yeah, he was in the South Pacific and he saw a lot of action. And uh, never talked about it, of course, but I think that uh, I know our neighbor had PTSD. He was a captain in the Navy in World War II, and he was just going off all the time. Yeah, that was certainly one of the hidden issues of the 50s. Yeah, and if they weren't scarred by the war, they'd been scarred by the Great Depression, Mm -hmm. you know, where the society essentially collapsed and young boys, young men, had to drop out of school and earn a living. That was true of both my father and my husband's father. Plus internalizing the idea of the nuclear bomb. And scarcity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they just had gone through a lot. They didn't really talk about it. They drank a lot. They were angry. A lot going on. But it was, uh, it felt safe. It felt safe. We were born in this big umbrella of net of safety. Yeah. Yeah. We so really, that we felt we could do anything, yeah, pretty much, and just, we did. Just get your handbook and, <laughs> and go ahead. Um, is it a surprise that we thought we were changing the world? Or a surprise how it pushed back and changed us? Well, definitely a baby boomer poem, <laughs> as my son used, likes to say to me. Okay, boomer. boomer. Yeah, that's the, that's the word these days. Okay, boomer. Okay, boomer. Well, at least we tried. I mean, the next generation just like became this kind of materialistic 80s Reagan material girl. Back, forth, back, forth, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, anyway, this is KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. Deanna Riley here on the Hive Poetry Collective with Meryl Natchez. And I think it's time for another poem. So, um, Stuck in the Middle with You, it's a popular song, and... um, It's also the title poem of my book, which you'll find out why. I'll just read it. Is that the Beatles? No, it's not Beatles. And honestly, I can't... It's slipping in my mind who it is. But almost everybody who's listening to this is going to know. Stuck in the middle with you. And it is the song that's playing in Reservoir Dogs in this scene. Ooh, okay. Uh, So Larry again appears in this poem. Larry is watching the scene with the duct tape and razor from Reservoir Dogs, grinning and eating pistachios. I have to look away. It's the wrong moment for Lucky, the wrong moment for any poem I might read him, though the calculated, casual laceration on the screen is a sort of aria of American violence, part of our national fabric, like football and invasion and prize fights. And men have an appetite for it, just as women love the pinch and pitch of stilettos, the beauty and pain part of one package. Because I have my own dark pleasures, I turn and wait for another moment when my husband's eyes aren't alight with animal delight, 
and he is open to a more subtle beauty, as he so often is, as both of us so often are, as we falter together along the catwalk of consciousness. Thanks, Meryl. That was Stuck in the Middle with You, poem by Meryl Natchez here on the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Deanna Riley. So what really strikes me um, as I read this again is the sounds in this are really strong, calculated, casual laceration, sort of aria of American violence. Football, invasion, prize fights, that's a really nice series there. Pinch, pitch, pain, part of one package. I turn and wait for another moment when my husband's eyes are alight with animal delight. And falter and catwalk right next to each other. So there's a cascade of great sounds in this. I really picked this up the second time when you read it aloud. Um, But also there's a... Well, do you want to talk about that a little bit, the sounds? You know... um I was thinking about that as I was listening to a podcast about poetry, and I'm always kind of amazed when someone can do what you just did, is like pick that out of a poem. Because to me, I mean, I read a lot, I try to create music in my poem, but that's that was completely uncalculated on my part. It just happened as I worked on the poem. And um, I'm very appreciative of your discovering it in there, but I, I'm not sure that I ever do that consciously. When I was a high school teacher, my students would always say, did the authors mean to do all this stuff on purpose? And I would say, I don't know, but it's still just as magical if it happens from your having internalized rhythms. I think that's it. We all have a heartbeat that we grew up listening to, and... If we really listen and read, I think we just absorb it. Yeah, I think, you know, you get a vocabulary in your poetry by reading and listening to poems that just becomes part of your craft. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think, I honestly don't think poets, for the most part, that I know consciously, at least in the first draft, go through and say, I'm going to make this a really... KKK kind of poem, you know, that clacky, cracky sound. Mm -hmm. You might, in the revision, replace words when you see that happening. But I don't think it's like part of the initial process. At least for me, it's not. I can't really speak for anybody else's process. I kind of go back and forth. Like sometimes I, I sometimes I'll pick a series of words I want to use that have the sound. Evie Shockley read a poem last week where she only used the vowel a, and that created the same kind of crack. What in every word? In every no, that was the only vowel in the poem. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean I don't think she counted y, but uh, yeah, she didn't use o, i, e, or u. And, it, and she did that consciously. She, she selected that form for her poem. And it had an amazing effect sonically. Okay, audience, that's your prompt. <laughs> <laughs> Write a poem using words only with the vowel A. You can have A and other vowels or only? Only, o- the, the, only the vowel A wow. through the whole poem. And it created this really crackling energy in the poem. It was Pretty amazing. Evie Shockley. Mm-hmm. Okay, I wonder if that one's on. I think it's in her new book, uh, which is, uh, it's not The New Black. It's, sorry, it's her latest okay, book. Well, uh, we're almost at the half an hour, so I just want to say that oh. this is KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. This is the Hive Poetry Collective, and we're halfway through this fabulous little talk with Meryl Natchez. I'm Deanna Riley. Um, so the other aspect of this poem that strikes me is it's rather abstract and hard for me to explain, but it's sort of a bridging together of male and female anima. Yeah, I think that's, there's several poems like that in this book where I'm contrasting. My husband's a real guy and I'm not, (laughs) 
And so, I mean, we've lived together a long time. We've bumped up against each other a lot. And uh, I think that's a theme in my work. Um, He really enjoys violent movies, I guess. Yeah, he enjoys prize fights. He enjoys Mm -hmm. football. He and all that stuff. He likes to watch it. Mm -hmm. And you don't. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't. You like you like the poem "Lucky" by Tony Hoagland, yeah. which you bring in here, which is also, I mean, that's a pretty. There's a simmering violence in that yeah. poem. There's, um, I think, a bravery about that poem that I really imagine because it's. I think it's pretty rare for a poet to show the unkindest part of himself, the part really willing to do harm, and it was so believable in that poem. Oh yeah. He's holding his ailing mother in the cold of the bathroom just t- to get back at her. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she kind of goes along with she, it. She, she recognizes that she deserves it in a certain way. And the way it ends, you know, if you're lucky in this life, you will get to hold the cold spoon of ice cream. I don't want to mess it up. Before the creature. Yeah. yeah, the creature mouth. Um, I'm pretty sure if the audience wants to go into the Hive Collective's archives, which you can find uh, at Spotify or iTunes, you can find a discussion that Danusha Lamaris and I did of Tony Hoagland. I believe we talk about that poem in there because that's the model for the poet exposing his or her own foibles. Right. And so fearlessly. So you can see there's, although you don't like to see the violence or the speaker in the poem, as we like to say. As we like to say. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Although you don't want to watch people being brutalized, per se, you do enjoy this dark side of human nature that is revealed in that poem. I mean, without the dark side, there would be no, it's yin-yang, there would be no light side, you know. Um, We are all of a piece. And Tony talks about that, how poets want to be liked, we want to be politically correct, we want to write about important issues, and we should, Mm -hmm. but that might not be our truth in a certain way sometimes. It's part of our truth. It's part of our truth. Um. Well, you, you kind of go out on a limb here and say that women have an appetite for the pinch and pitch of stilettos, the beauty and pain, part of one package. Well, I don't think there is any woman that I know, whether you are gay or feminist or whatever, who has not at one time enjoyed the idea of looking completely sexy in an uncomfortable outfit. Even if it's just for the bedroom, but not the workplace. Right. Mm -hmm. No matter what. I mean, Mm. there's something really seductive about that, and it is almost always uncomfortable. I'd like to conduct a poll. (laughs) Do so. (laughs) I mean, maybe I'm old-fashioned. Maybe Uh it's just my generation, you know? Uh, know, I'd say, you know, it's definitely, I'm definitely not about to wear a pair of stilettos in public. Not today. Yeah. But I have worn them. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And I have worn Mm -hmm. red lace-up leather boots. I've, you know, there's something really attractive about that kind of um, transgressive beauty. Right on. Well, we just had that big hit on Broadway with Kinky Boots, right? Right. I mean, that must be 10 years old now. I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, that was a huge hit. Yeah. Cindy Lauper. Yeah. Yeah. It's always a winner. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, Right. Because I have my own dark pleasures. Beautiful. Okay. So that was stuck in the middle of you with you. With interesting slip there, Dion. What did I say? (laughs) Stuck in the middle of you. (laughs) (laughs) Woo. Let's move on quick from yeah. that. Okay. <laughs> um, with Meryl Natchez here on KSQD Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. We're always getting down to business on this show. Can't help it. It's poetry, right? Can't help it. That's the honey in the hive. Right. Yeah. So, But we're going to move from being stuck in the middle of to Einstein. Yeah. So um, as I was talking to you earlier, uh, two summers ago, I read a book called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics by Carlo Rivelli, which um, basically takes science from where I left off, which was Newton, up to quantum loop theory today in a very lucid and literate 
series of brief essays. And I, um, I started reading them and poems just, prose poems just started coming to me. And actually, the poems started coming before I had a form. I'd never really written poem, prose poems. But at the same time, I was reading C.K. Williams and I came across his poem, 60, which is a one long sentence prose poem. And I just, for whatever reason, I thought this is the form for these poems. And I started writing them. I wrote just, they were just coming like like a cascade of gifts. So wonderful. And this was actually the very first one. Let's just do a plug for C.K. Williams because he has just not read that much anymore. His, they came out with a book of his late poems a couple of years ago. So fabulous. I mean, he is really... A master, very unusual. Those long lines, mm-hmm. even in his, well, his very last work, he didn't use them, but most of his life, he used these like 12, 10, 12 syllable lines just that unfold like the breath. Just, I think I'm going to do a short segment on you him. You should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think he is underrecognized. But anyway, his poem 60. Wonderful poem. You could start with that. Okay. okay. Um, so this is that was the form that came for this, and there was about I don't know a dozen or twenty of them. This was the first. So shall I just go yeah, for it? Okay. Go ahead. Thinking about Einstein while waiting for the big blue bus. How is it that the light at the corner of Pico and Lincoln that spills so generously over the sidewalk, the blue metal bus stop chairs, the five lanes with their cross stitch of traffic, can be Discrete packets, discontinuous, distributed across space. How a mind on a series of ordinary mornings, forkfuls and mouthfuls and earfuls, how a mind could deconstruct the everywhereness of light into microscopic moving parts, some of which only exist when they bump into each other. How is it he could gaze at the golden abundance, spilling over Ulm and Munich and Pavia, and think, no, not a blanket, not a swath, but a gathering of particles that meander somewhat predictably through the bent universe to bump against us in leaps and bounces, while in Germany the Jews begin to stitch yellow stars on their sleeves, and next to me at the bus stop, mostly Hispanic faces, and the light streaming over everyone. How beautiful. That was Merrill Natchez's poem, Thinking About Einstein While Waiting for the Big Blue Bus. I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. So this is the first time I've read this poem. And um, it really speaks to how there's so much going on in the universe and in our experience, so many discrete activities. And yet we metabolize them in a certain way and create our reality and really it's a reality that is very different from our prejudices and our society and our rules which exist within these forces absolutely yeah and the big blue bus um, that's the santa monica bus at la and, you know, in L.A., if you don't have a car, you're definitely in the lower classes. Mm. I mean, you're riding that. It's not like New York where everybody's riding the bus or the subway. In, in L.A., if you're riding the bus, you're poor for the most part, or a student, mm-hmm. or me. <laughs> <laughs> or your car broke down. Well, I just, yeah. I'm, I'm from New York. I have a, anytime I can use public transit, I have an, uh, a bias in its favor. And uh, so... When I'm in L.A. and I don't have a car all the time, I, I do use the bus. And But you notice that, like, the people around you are downtrodden, you know. They're, they are not happy. They are struggling. And at the same time, you're in this cosmic world where everything's bumping along. And then, you know... And there's so much light. There's so much light, light and the there. light makes no distinction, you know. Mm-hmm. It just spills over us all. And it just, I mean, this was just really a stream of consciousness, kind of. It's a good example of how we're limited beings in a limitless exactly. existence. So beautifully put, yeah. yeah. We are. Well, that was lovely. The everywhereness of light down there in... LA here and also in the Monterey Bay. Very beautifully lit California. 
Lovely. Well, why don't we talk a little bit now about a little bit more about your history with poetry. You studied literature in college. Right. And, and I, at that time, um, the school I went to, that meant Swinburne, Milton, uh, mm-hmm. Hopkins. Uh, actually, our curriculum ended at Robert Frost. And when I discovered Creeley and Olson and Levertov, I had to get special dispensation to, to write a paper on them because they were alive and they were younger than Frost. They weren't part of the, the canon. And they were a, women, some of them. Um, yeah. They were just a very different world. They weren't on the approved list. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, I wrote pretty much formal poetry myself, uh, lots of villanelles and sonnets and rhymed couplets and... Um, and then, um, well, we can see then <laughs> that in your writing when you these this kind of rhythm and yeah. Well, I mean, I think rhyme sound has always been really important to me. I, as a teenager, I mean, I was a weird teenager. Who isn't? But <laughs> I adored Hart Crane, for example, and I would wander over the fields of Vermont reciting the seal spindrift gazed paradise. You know, I mean, I just loved lush language. And I think um, part of my journey as a poet personally has been to stop trying to make my poems pretty. Mm. Um, to try and to stop trying to make them logical and formal. Mm-hmm. Now, even when they're not formal, there's a sort of formal logic that I'm struggling against in my own writing. And um, which actually kind of brings us to the next series. So, um, so I dropped out of school. I didn't get a BA. I met Larry. I came. I went to Canada with him because it was the Vietnam War, and I had four children pretty quickly. And so, uh, for years, I didn't really write poetry. I mean, except when I was mis- really miserable, <laughs> you know. And then. Um, uh, someone gave me Sharon Olds' The Gold Cell in about 1987. And because of that, I saw she was at the Community of Writers at Squaw Valley, and I went and studied there, and you had to write a poem every day. And since that time, pretty much, I've had long periods of writing every day, even while I was working, even while I had kids at home. And so that daily practice, I think, you know, as my friend who's a visual artist said, you know, you do something every day for 10 years for a couple of hours, you get better at it. Yeah, you put in your 10,000 hours. Yeah, your 10,000 hours. How did you hours. manage to fit that in when you had I those kids? I got up really early. Mm-hmm. And that first hour of the day, I'm an early person anyway. I grew up on the East Coast. It's like I never changed time zones in a certain <laughs> way. So to wake up at 5 wasn't a pain for me. It wasn't mm-hmm. painful. I didn't even need an alarm. I would wake. Well, I was anxious, too. So... <laughs> I would wake up and I would turn that anxiety to my personal work and then I'd make breakfast and lunches and off we'd all go to our separate days. Mm. And I, I, I mean, I didn't do that every day for years, but I did that a lot of days mm-hmm. and I still do it. And, um, you know, you write a huge number of terrible poems, but hey, you get some good ones along the way too. Here and there. Here and there. Yeah, you just have to spew a lot. I I really I just finished reading um, Mark Jarman's book Dailiness: The Practice of Poetry, which is a bunch of essays, and he is like a totally devotional poet. focused energy Mm -hmm. that not so normal and how do you how do you keep a reading practice well if I can't write I read Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have stacks and stacks and stacks of reading and Mm -hmm. you know that's one thing about having a community of poets which we were talking about earlier before the show it's like when you are around other people practicing poetry they're introducing poets to you and then you want to read them and so it's uh, it enriches your life to read. It. Oh God, I just love reading a good poem. I'm often just consumed with jealousy. But right, <laughs> I you know I feel like when you're consumed with jealousy over a poem, that it's time to really deconstruct that poem. 
and write your own similar Absolutely. one, that means you probably need to use it as a model. It's very hard. I find that really hard to do. I know some people are really good at it. Mark Jarman is a master at that. If you read his book, he's just like insanely good at it. I'm. It's hard for me to deconstruct, but mm-hmm. I do try. Okay, what is really going on here that I wish I could do? Right. It really means that you need to look at it and analyze it and the how and the why. And imitate, imitate, imitate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Stand on that person's shoulders. Exactly. I think that that's what that burning jealousy really is. Well, <laughs> I try to find a nice way. Yeah, to, that, yeah, that's a much more lovely way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, because it, it can be so hard to stay on this path. I really think that just keeping your mind in a positive place about being a poet is 80% of it. Because you, it's so hard. And having those friends and those people that you can share in the process with. Really because it, it's, I, I, it's sort of like the handbook can't prepare you for childbirth and having children. There's nothing that can prepare you for the difficulty of being an artist. It's really true. And the thing is, there are two sides of it. There's the difficulty of creativity, which is a, in itself a huge issue. And then there's the whole career part of it, which is seems almost in direct opposition to the energy of creation. But like you want to get your work out there, right? So you have these two kind of very contradictory, time-consuming strands of your craft. Yes, and submitting can be just like getting smacked over and it's like reservoir dogs yeah it is it is (laughs) every day it is just you just rejection after rejection after rejection and it doesn't matter that sylvia plath's room was was actually wallpapered with rejection slips when they actually sent physical rejection slips it still feels very personal and very bad Mm -hmm. yeah it's especially if you get several in the same day (laughs) (laughs) yeah well, you know, um, the secret is you just keep sending out. You just, that's, and I had a really great talk with Forrest Gander about this because um, when I was thinking about this new book, Catwalk, and I was looking at sort of the mountain of things one has to do to actually get one's book out into the world, not just into print, right? That's already been a struggle, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, well, you know, I'm 71 years old. Do I really want to spend whatever time I have in this next decade doing that, you know, and he gave me this talking to, and he said, like, you know, you owe it to your book to promote your book and to get out there and to do whatever you can for your book. It's out there. It's a baby. You have to take care of it. You have to, and I, I, that's a very good approach. And you have to think that same way about submitting, you know, you've written this poem, you want people to see it. You just, somebody's going to see it and relate to it. And that'll be the right place for it. You just got to do it. it. Because it's it's a river that you're drinking from and also contributing to. Exactly. And you want to partake of that river in a really complete way. Yeah. If you asked me what my Ars Poetica was, I would say that we are, we, we artists and poets, there is a river that we are all an integral part of. So like, if I don't react honestly to your work and you're my friend... I'm so dissing you, you know, we are all trying to do our best here. Let's get the bad stuff out. Let's work hard to be the best we can be of who we are. We are all struggling to create this miraculous thing that is good work. Refining the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Continuing the work of the 60s and 70s. Right. Okay, boomer. (laughs) So on that note, the next poem we were going to look at is Looseplex, which is based on Jericho Brown's work, Right. correct? Yes. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about that? Well, see, this is community. So I'm on the board of the Marin Poetry Center. Amanda Moore, who you've also had on the show, is on that board. And one day she came in raving about this essay about the duplex. And so I immediately went to read Jericho's essay. And he was talking about how he came up with this new sonnet form of basically cut lines of nine or 11 syllables from his old poems rearranged into a sonnet form. And his are actually quite uh, rigorous and rigid. Um, They have a lot of echoing lines. He takes the first line and twists it. And and 
that was too, too, uh, Constrained. Constrained, and uh, I just couldn't do it. So, Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, because I have this writing practice, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bad poems with maybe one good line. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of taking my scissors and just going through that stack and starting, I just could hardly wait to start. And so I started physically, and let me tell you the visceral thrill of this, physically cutting into these old poems and just I bought these big sheets of kind of reverse sticky notes that you could stick things on and I just started throwing the lines on there and out of it came uh, this form called the looseplex which um, what I love about it personally is as I think I told you I'm trying not to be so logical in my work Mm. so this destroys the logic because they're just they're lines from different poems and they create their own kind of imagery and logic. So I've written quite a few of these now. And and um, he doesn't really title his anything other than duplex. Mm-hmm. But I found like uh, when I didn't give them a name, there was sort of nothing for someone to hold on to because mine aren't nearly as intricately woven as his. Mm-hmm. So I titled them. So this one's called Looseplex Tsunami. And um, the only thing I'll say about it is that all these lines are from previous poems, and they're all either nine or 11 syllables. There's something about that that really works. Um, And I had the opportunity to talk to him about that, and we both agreed. We don't know what it is, but something about that line length really works. Nine to 12 syllables? Nine or 11. Either either nine or 11. Every line in this poem is either nine or 11 syllables. That's, That's the only constraint other than that they existed in a previous poem. Okay. Okay. Looseplex Tsunami. It was morning for days afterward. The telephone poles and wires whipped and sparked. Gold looked like brass and bones poked up through plowed fields. You can fall a long way in sunlight. The white balcony, the pine needle shadow, impossibly doomed and graceful and obsessed. Is the psyche bound to the body? Icing of debris over orderly fields, barnacles on memory's exposed pier, the way pain fades to the memory of pain, slicing the orange flesh of the papaya. Oh, life, life, you are such a muchness. I searched for more footage of the massive waves. It was morning for days afterward. That was Meryl Natchez reading Loose Flex Tsunami here on the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Dion O'Reilly. And before we talk about this poem, I just want to tell our audience that this show and all our shows are available on iTunes and Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook at the Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD, and we have a blog, hivepoetry.org. So if you want to comment on these poems or anything you heard today, please leave a comment on Facebook or email us at hivepoetry.org off our website. We'd love to hear from you. So this looseplex tsunami you really do give yourself a lot of permission here to be more associative yeah, um, in your thinking. This is a real departure for me, as I really like to tie things up with a bow. Mm-hmm. And um, I just love that it it's not possible. And I love that just one line seems to call to another line. Oh, one other constraint that just sort of emerged as I was working on it is I have a lot of question lines. And so every poem I've used one of those question lines somewhere. And um, I like having that question in there. It's a psyche bound to the body. That's a great, a great one for this one because what this, what I feel in this poem is an aftermath of just a terrible, well, a tsunami, a yeah. wiping away of reality as we know it. Yeah, yeah. It's that's. I had written a lot of poems about the tsunami in Japan none of which had been successful. Oh, and one thing that happens for me, I know this can't be true for anybody else, but I know where all these lines come from. Uh-huh. So, they, I mean, they carry with them, for me, association from other poems 
that makes them really rich for me. Wow. And I, I kind of think that somehow, subconsciously, some of that richness seeps in, mm. even though you can't know the poem that they came from and the, the many failed tsunami attempts that this poem represents. They're like literary illusions. <laughs> Yeah. Like any kind of literary illusion. But I really feel like it, this is about a loosening from reality. Yes, a exactly. A loosening from groundedness. Exactly. And also, after a tragedy, how we live that, re- re- we relive it, and, and it lives with us. And it's compelling. You know, that line, I search for more footage of the massive waves. I mean, mm-hmm. I was riveted to, to that. Uh, catastrophe, the the churning of those waves, when just the way they ate up cars and buildings, and yeah, it's hard not to look. Yeah, and it's yeah. very compelling. There's something about natural disaster that just we are drawn to keep looking. Right, I know that. I've had that feeling where I look at a jet in the sky and I think, why would I love to see that fall? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, any highway disaster, right? When you're driving along, what's what's slowing down the traffic? Rubberneckers. Everybody has to look, and you have to look. Mm. It's just human nature. Yeah, right. But it's, but it's complex, you know. Well, it's what you talk about, too, in The Husband Watching Reservoir Dogs and watching a It's real. Fight. There's a reality to it. There's a reality to it. to it. Well, we're sort of cut off from reality nowadays, uh, I grew up on a farm, so there was an awful lot of violence all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't grow up that way, especially people who grew up in the 50s. A lot of the millennials want to get back to the land, but when you do, there's an awful lot of violence you have to see, an awful lot of It's blood. a grubby life. It really is, yeah, but it is real. It is real. It is authentic. It really is. Well, we have a few minutes left. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about your current projects? Okay. Well, uh, I'm doing a lot of hybuns because of Amanda Moore, really, again, because mm-hmm. I read her uh, wonderful uh, Lost Notebooks hybun, and I really got into that form, which kind of combines a prose poem and a haiku. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I said, I think earlier that um, I am doing this kind of rush of poems, kind of delving into my experience in the 60s and 70s and and trying to, for myself, come to terms with that, put yeah. it put it in some kind of context for myself yeah. through through the poems, really, and so um, that's mostly right now what I'm working on, and those turn out to be pretty, I would say, pretty straightforward lyrics without form, uh, maybe to <laughs> echo that experience. I don't know, but um, kind of musical. And uh, so I often surprise me in the direction they take. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. There's a lot. To, there's a lot to say about that. Time. There is. There really is. And a lot for me to understand. Just looking back on its effect on my life, my children's lives. You know how they have, and the people I knew then, and how they've, how that's played out. It's a history of the human heart. Right. Well put. Going back through that time. And where else do we have a history of the human heart but in poetry in a very direct way? Wow, it has been so fun having you, Meryl, here on the ranch. Well, having, having this show is such a treasure. I've enjoyed, in, in preparing to come here, I've listened to them and enjoyed them so much. It's a real treasure that you've created, a real well, hive. Well, I'm glad that people like the hive. we would want to be buzzing here and no one likes our honey (laughs) well you do a great job of getting it out there okay thank you so much this has been Meryl Natchez here on the Hive Poetry Collective I'm Deanna Riley stay tuned or tune in every Sunday at 8 o'clock there will be poetry here on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM Usually it's the Hive Poetry Collective, but sometimes it's the Poetry Show, the longest-running poetry show in the country. Thanks, Meryl, and thanks all of you for coming to the Hive Poetry Collective.